Well, good morning again. Glad you're here. If you would stand. Uh, we're going to be covering Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 35. We will not read all of those. I'm going to focus on 21 through 35, which talks about Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphany, who is a type of the Antichrist. So that'll be what we'll focus on today. Uh, so if you would, join me in verse 21. And in his place shall rise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. For he shall come up and become strong and with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. By returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. So he shall do damage and return to his own people. At the appointed time he shall return and go towards the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, for the ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortresses. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with, with them by intrigue. And some of those of the understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and to make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Now, can someone give me a summary of the chapter? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, this is not easy. You talk about something that is, that is difficult. This is not where you're on a desert island with the book of Daniel, open it to chapter 11 and know what in the world's going on. You've got to have some background, you have to know some history and that whole thing. So anyway, the theme of Daniel is, God is sovereign over nations, God is sovereign over rulers, and guess what? God is sovereign over you and your life. Now we have a review, we haven't been in this for about a month, so I want to remind you of a few things. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in that dream, he had a statue, and remember the statue, the Gentile nations that will arise over the history of, history of mankind. It started with Babylon, gold, Persia, silver, bronze or brass, Greece, Rome, East and West Division, which exists to today. The nations are divided in the East and West Divisions. Coming on the horizon is a ten-nation confederation. The world will be split up. We had a map in the past with the United Nations have divided the world into ten nation groups or ten divisions. Don't know if that's going to be the divisions at the Antichrist time, but we know that principle is there. 
We just want to remind you that this is looked at by humanity, by the, the fleshly humans, as wonderful and terrific. It's gold, it's silver, it's powerful. The metals start most precious and go down to least precious, but also goes from weaker to stronger, iron being the strongest of all. But God views these very differently. He views these as, as beast, lion, bear, leopard, and this indescribable beast of Rome, which was terrible. That is how God views these nations, very different than we do. Now, I want you to remember the reason that we want to focus on these nations is because the nation of Israel is the one that is directly affected by these nations. There have been other kingdoms that have risen throughout the history of the world. But the ones that are germane to God and germane to our study are these worlds that have impacted Israel. Four generals that the kingdom of Alexander was divided into. Seleucus, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander. For 150 to 200 years, there was a fistfight between Ptolemy and Seleucus for power. They would come back and forth, back and forth. Israel is in the middle of this conflict. And they're going back and forth, back and forth, trampling the nation of Israel. Put this into your mind, okay? Put this into your mind. We also had the four generals. So Alexander dies. He dies at an early age. He dies at age 30. He is the goat with the single horn in Daniel chapter 8. He attacks Persia, which is Medo-Persia, has the two horns, and he viciously attacks them and defeats them very quickly. Divides his kingdom into the, to the four kingdoms. And again, Ptolemy and Seleucus are the ones that we focus on. So that brings us kind of up to speed where we had been. Now chapters 10, 11, and 12, I don't know if you remember this, are a single last vision, a last prophecy of what's going to happen into the future. And in chapter 10, we see that there's angel conflicts, that Daniel has a vision. And this vision, he wants to understand the vision. So he's praying, I want to understand this. It took 21 days for the angel to get to Daniel because there was spiritual warfare in the heavenlies. Michael had to rescue the angel with the message from the prince of Persia. And we talked a lot about the angelic realm, the demonic realm, and that sort of thing. And we learned that, that there are principalities, there are powers over different areas, different people groups. This is germane. This is important to us today. Especially because the fight for the information being transferred from heaven to Daniel was to prohibit Daniel and us from knowing what's going to happen into the future. Satan does not want us to know. He did not want Daniel to know, but he couldn't stop it. It was God's plan. Remember this. Satan uses any means he can to keep people from knowing what the truth is and what is coming. What is coming. He doesn't want us to know. His strategies are distraction, division, deception, and he will take anything that he can to get people out of the Word of God, out of the prophetic Word in particular. Most places don't even deal with prophecy. It's too difficult. It's too controversial. Don't want to get into those things. It isn't cheery, cheery, cheery. And, and so people don't know about it. But Jesus said he held his people responsible. Remember on, when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he held them responsible for knowing if you only had known this your time, 
But now these things have passed from you. And he held them responsible to know that he was the Messiah. Why? Because it was written in the Old Testament about who Messiah would be and what he would do. And he held them responsible. So Satan will do anything to keep us away from the Bible, keep us away from the truth. The Bible is boring. That gets promoted. The Bible has been corrupted. You've heard that one. The Bible is old-fashioned. We have to bring it into the 21st century. I mean, we need to bring the Bible into modern age. Deception is rampant. Satan methodologies are old. Remember, right from the beginning, he's questioned the Word of God. Has God thus said? And it's gone all the way through the epochs of time and is crescendoing today. Has God thus said? American and the Western church, folks, has, have never been this biblically illiterate. Never been this biblically illiterate. They're open to worldviews that are contrary to God. I want to give you just a couple of examples. The Pew Research did this. They said there's a record few Americans that believe the Bible is the literal word of God. A record few. 24% in the recent Gallup poll, it's the lowest in a 40-year trend. 40, 24% believe it's the literal word of God. 26% believe it's secular stories. 12% of the millennials, 18 to 29, believe it's the literal word of God. This, the trend is going down and down and down as we get contrary worldviews coming into people at a 24-7 pace. We are inundated with contrary information. Francis Schaeffer said something very interesting. He said this, What is considered the norm in the culture now will in seven years be the norm in the church. And we see something called culture creep, where the culture creeps into the church. Let me give you a couple of examples. This won't be new to most of you. We've been through this before. But we've talked about culture creep, open borders, globalism, uh, illegal immigration. Those types of things have crept into the church, crept into the church. One world, one world ruler. Let's open our borders. And remember, remember, God is for borders. He is for borders. Why is that? One ruling people can never be trusted. If we have borders and other nations, those nations are a protection against one nation going off the rails and wanting to control everything. How about abortion being cloaked in women's rights? That has permeated the church today. And how about this one just in the last, since 2015? when there was the Oberfold decision that we would approve gay marriage in America. That has crept into the church, folks. That has become more and more the standard. And how about climate change? Now, I, you know, There's people that can make arguments for climate change and against climate change. That's not really the issue. The issue with climate change is, is that the world is using it to unite the world under one umbrella to bring everyone together to fight the, whatever they think the climate change is. Okay, now listen to this one. The Church of England has decided that the culture creep is so significant there that now they're doing transgender rebaptisms so that you can celebrate your new identity and your new name. You talk, culture creep has come into the church, where what is happening in a culture is becoming the norm in the church. Brandon House, and I mentioned him before, and you've, you've actually heard this before, in his book, The Religious Trojan Horse, gave us some interesting information. 
he said this, doctrine determines your worldview. Now, that doctrine is teaching, and I think it's biblical teaching. It determines your worldview. Your worldview, how you look at the world, determines your values, and your values determine your conduct, how you're going to conduct yourself in the world. Now, the question that you have to be asked, or must be asked right now, is doctrine important? Now, the reason I'm, I'm emphasizing this is because so many people go, doctrine? It's almost like you're choking them. Doctrine? Eh, doctrine? I can't believe doctrine? You guys teach the Bible? I mean, how boring is that? You know, is doctrine important? It's, folks, it's the reason there's attack in the Bible. And I'll tell you, it's the reason that you don't see many Bibles in churches today. You go to a church, and you'll see the vast majority of people, no one's taking their Bible. They don't have to. There's no need. They're not really studying the Bible. Is doctrine important? Yes. It's the linchpin for everything else. Doctrine, uh, doctrine is the antidote for cultural indoctrination. Let me say that again. Doctrine, biblical teaching, is the antidote for cultural indoctrination. Satan's strategy hasn't changed. He wanted to keep God's information away from Daniel. He wanted to keep God's information away from us. He wants to diminish the value of the Bible in the culture. It hasn't changed. His strategy is to keep you from God's word. And there are angelic wars that are actually involved in this process that we've learned in Daniel. Now, this week, we're going to talk about warring kings and the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and the nation of Israel right in between. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. And Holy Spirit, you are going to have to teach us today. Please, Lord, open my mind and help me to rightly divide your word and help us to understand what you have for us. This is particularly difficult and complex. So speak through me, Lord, to your people. and Help us to understand what you want us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 11 is going to give us detailed information on Israel's future. Now, this is important. History has proven these prophecies to be true. Daniel prophesied these 100 to 400 years before they came to fruition. 100 to 400 years prior to these events. Verses 2 through 20, we're going to talk about the Ptolemy and the Seleucid Wars. And you can really get in the weeds with this. There's umpteen Ptolemies and there's umpteen Seleucids. So 2 through 20 talks a lot about history. The 150 years fighting, the supremacy back and forth. This fight between Seleucus and Ptolemy involves the nation of Israel right in between, right smack dab in the middle. That is something that we have to indelibly imprint in our minds because this battle involves a nation of Israel, involves a nation of So our focus today is going to be verses 21 through 35. We'll do that a line upon line. Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. His name is Epiphanes because it's the illustrious one, the glorious one, the godlike one. That's the title he took upon himself. It's the same thing that Antichrist will do. Remember, this guy is a picture or a type of Antichrist. Next week, in the last 10 verses of Daniel, we'll talk about the Antichrist, the real guy. This week, the type, the picture. Now, we need to know this. The precision of this prophecy has confounded the critics throughout the ages. 
It's so accurate, they say that Daniel must have been written after the fact. Daniel was writing about history. This is not true. This is not true. This was prophetic scripture that came to fruition just exactly as predicted. Exactly as predicted. Now, I want to give you an overview, just briefly, of verses 2 through 20. This is kind of bring you up to speed. In verse 2, three kings will arise in Persia. Now, that was, that was prophesied. Guess what happened? Three kings arose in Persia. These are their names. Cambius, Pseudo-Smyrnus, and Darius I, a different Darius than the one we've seen earlier in Daniel. And then a fourth one, more powerful, arises. And guess what? A fourth one, more powerful, arose in Persia, just like the scripture has said. His name was Artaxerxes. He's the Ahasuerus of Esther. And he's the most powerful. And what Xerxes does, he takes a one million man army and he attacks Greece viciously. He destroys Athens, burns it to the ground, tramples over the city, but a miracle happens. His great navy is defeated at the Battle of Salamis by the Greek navy. And he goes back to Persia. Now, after that, in verse 3, you'll see a mighty king arises. And that king is Alexander the Great. He is, remember, he's the goat in Daniel chapter 8. He has the one horn. And remember, we had the picture of him viciously with the one horn, attacking and leaping over and attacking the two-horned ram. That was Alexander the Great. He did things with speed. He did things with tact. And he defeated. And he was retaliating against Xerxes' invasion of Greece. Remember that Alexander dies, and it's divided between four generals. Just like it says in the scripture here, it doesn't go to any offspring. It goes to other people, and those are the four generals. In verses 5 through 20, this is a 150 to 200 year war. Egypt is called the southern king. That's the Ptolemies. That's the Ptolemies, the southern king. The northern king is Seleucus. Ptolemy starts out the strongest, but Seleucus ends up the strongest at the end of that 150, 200 year reign. In this time period, there's arranged marriages between the two kingdoms to try to foster peace. These failed. Wives killed wives. Children were killed. Husbands were poisoned. That sort of thing. The important aspect to remember that Israel is in the middle of this conflict. And they're going back and forth, back and forth, trampling the nation of Israel. Now, eventually... This is a kind of a significant point. As Rome was gaining power, there's a guy named Antiochus III. He's the third one of these guys that initiates a peace pact with Egypt. And in that peace pact, he offers his daughter. And you'll see that in verse 17. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be with him. She gives Ptolemy his daughter in order for her to cipher or to give information to him about Ptolemy. That woman's name was Cleopatra. And what did Cleopatra do? She was from the Seleucid kingdom. She goes down to Egypt, and she falls in love with the Ptolemy king. And she does not trade. She sticks with her husband. So he loses out on that. Then there's a guy named Ptolemy the, the, the fifth. That was Ptolemy V that did this, not realizing that Cleopatra would fall in love with Ptolemy and be loyal to Egypt. Another Antiochus rises up, and he makes a big mistake, and he attacks Rome. 
and is defeated by Rome, and he goes home and he dies. Another guy comes up, which would be Seleucus IV. He succeeds. Now, you can understand why these, you're going to lose all these names and numbers and that sort of thing. Just remember, fight between the two, Israel in between. But this is an interesting one. Seleucus IV rises up after this other guy goes to war against Rome. And Rome wants taxes to pay for the war that this guy started. So now Seleucus IV taxes his people, including the nation of Israel. There's a guy named Haluterus, who's a Jew, is responsible for collecting taxes in Israel. Haluterus. His life was threatened, and so he makes a strategic decision. He says, okay, it's either they're going to kill me, or I'm going to kill Seleucus IV. So he goes back to Syria, and he poisons this guy, just like it says in verse 20, there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. That would be Seleucus IV imposes the taxes. But when a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger, not in battle, but by natural forces. And if you do history, this guy was poisoned. He couldn't have been killed. He couldn't have been in battle. It had to be died. He had to die this way. This murder of the king by a Jew sets the stage for the intense persecution of the Jews. Now you have the background of what has happened through those first 20 verses. You got all you need to know, okay? Now 21 through 35 is important because it it is the Antichrist, the picture of the Antichrist that we're dealing with. Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. So, let's start our, really get into our study now. So in verse 21, we see Antiochus Epiphanes rise to power. And again, he's called the illustrious one. Before I read the verse, he minted coins. He had his picture on it, and he was worshipped as a god. And he wanted to make sure that his people and everyone he conquered knew that he was the illustrious was. He was Epiphany. He was the glorified one. And he wanted to be worshipped as God just like the Antichrist. None of the other Seleucid did this. Just this guy. So he's a picture of the Antichrist. So verse 21, we see this. And in his place, Seleucus IV, who is poisoned to death, in his place, rises up this guy, Antiochus. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes is not the one that is in order to be, he's not in the hierarchy to be the one that is selected. He is not in the hierarchy, so he does something. And in his place shall rise a vile person to whom they will not give honor of royalty, because he's not in the royal line, but he shall come in, watch, he's sneaky, peacefully and seize the kingdom by intrigue. That is exactly what Antichrist does that we've learned about in Daniel chapter 7. He sneaks in, and with intrigue, he takes over the country. So Antiochus is not in line of succession. He weasels his way in with flattery and intrigue. And again, he views himself as the glorious one, the godlike one. But God looks at him as despicable and vile. Antiochus IV comes in peacefully like Antichrist. He starts slow, and he crescendos into control, just like the Antichrist will when he comes on the scene. 
is strategy. He uses intrigue. He uses flattery. He's a smooth talker. He's a smoozer, okay? And the gullible will fall for his line, hook, line, and sinker. Those who are gullible, well, who are the gullible? Who are caught off guard? Those not keeping watch will be caught off guard. Now think about this as Antichrist becomes revealed into the future. Those not keeping watch, those not knowing the word of God, those not knowing what to look for, those who are not alert to the times, signs of the times, those who are not aware of Bible prophecy and what to look for and what to expect, those who just like to be flattered. You know, there's a whole bunch of people that just want to be told how great they are, and that's what Antiochus did, and that's what Antichrist will do. They will be fodder for the Antichrist deception. God's cry to his people, God's cry to his church, is to know what is coming. Have a clue. Have a clue as to what's coming. So 22 through 24, Antiochus IV is true colors. He's going to be a deceiver. He's going to be a deceiver. With the force of a flood, that's an army. That's an army. We've learned that in the past. They shall be swept away from before him and broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Now, the prince of the covenant is speaking of the high priest, Onias, who is, who is in Israel, and he gets killed in this whole process. And that's what actually happened. And after the league is made, after alliances are made with him, he shall act deceitfully. So he's going to come in, he's going to be a conqueror, and he's going to make peace, and he's going to act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong, and he's going to come at Egypt with a small number of people. He's sneaky. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province. He's going to make inroads into Ptolemy's kingdom, even in the richest areas. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. Now, you older folks are going to know this. He's going to be Robin Hood. You know, take from the, from the rich, give to the poor, that sort of thing. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds. But notice how long he will accomplish this. Only for a time. It's the same thing with Antichrist. Only for the seven-year period of time. These guys, all their days are numbered. All their days are numbered. So let's develop this. So his methods, he's going to lay suspicion against Egypt. He comes with a small force, and he offers friendship and loyalty and alliances, and he maneuvers his way in for an advantage, and he catches them by surprise, and he pounces. He uses deception just like the Antichrist. Who does he sound like? He sounds like Satan, doesn't he? The same schemes, the same methodia, the same methods that Satan uses all through the history, Antichrist is going to use. Antiochus, smooth talking, deceptive, convincing, particularly for those without the word of God. Come as a friend. Remember how Satan comes? He comes like that purring little kitten. But he's reeling that roaring lion that wants to pounce and destroy. In verse 23, he acts deceptively, but he becomes strong. Verse 24, he does something very different. Antiochus, the deceiver, disperses the plunder. Why does he do that? He's bribing them. He's manipulating them. 
He wants others to follow him. But again, it's only for a time. Only for a time. His power will last only for a time. And I would suggest to you this tells me who's really in charge. God is in charge. Never forget it. When things start to look bleak in the world, things start to look strange and out of sorts, remember, God is still in charge. Verse 25 through 28. Antiochus will have a power play. 25 through 28. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, against Egypt, against Ptolemy, with a great army. But watch what the king of the south does. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. So they get two big armies, equally strong, coming at one another. But watch what the king of the north does. For they shall devise plans against him. These are plans against the king of the south. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. Now you're going to find out. I'm going to repeat this again. But these are family members. These are the sons of Ptolemy that the Seleucus king, that Antiochus, has bought off. And he is going to have traitors. Ptolemy is going to have traitors right within his family. And that actually happened. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And then both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. They're both bad, Ptolemy and and Antiochus. They shall speak lies at the same table, at the peace table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will be at the appointed time. Again, there's a time frame that all this stuff is played out in. While returning to his land, now Antiochus is going to have some victories. There's going to be a peace table there, peace talks. But he's going to leave that place with booty. He's going to leave that place with riches. His heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. His heart is going to be moved. Something's going to happen to Antiochus as he's going back from Egypt to Syria through Israel, and he's going to say, I need to exert some awfulness on the people of Israel, the Holy Covenant people. Let's develop this. Let's develop this. Antiochus has his power established. He devises plans and schemes. He buys off the kings of the south south sons. These are traitors to their dad. Traitors to their dad. That's the important thing to remember. Antiochus defeated the army of Ptolemy Philometor. In the next campaign, made himself master of all of Egypt except Alexandria. While they had frequent conferences at the same table, they spoke lies to one another. They're cut out of the same cloth. And the former returned to Syria laden with riches. In verse 27, we see the king of the north and the king of the south, they sit at the peace table. And leaving Egypt with great riches, frustrated he did not take all of Egypt and Alexandria. He's frustrated. His heart then is moved against the Holy Covenant. But there's something that has happened that we don't see here that history records that moved his heart. I think Satan's behind all this stuff. But this is what happened. A report came to his ears that the Jewish people heard about his untimely death, and they were having celebrations in the street of Israel. And Antiochus found out about this. He was enraged, and he took his army into Israel and killed 80,000 Jews. At that point, he desecrates the temple, but that's not the abomination of desolation. That's just a preview of coming attractions. Preview of coming attractions. 
in verse 29 through 31, Antiochus Epiphanes blasphemes God. This is the abomination of desolation. This is the thing that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 when he warns about the, the abomination of desolation that will come with the Antichrist. The Antiochus is a picture of this. 29 through 31, at the appointed time. Again, who's orchestrating all of this? God is orchestrating it. He shall return and go towards the south. Antiochus is again going to attack the Ptolemies. But it shall not be like the former or the latter. For the ships from Cyprus, now Cyprus is an island off of Greece. At this time, Rome has now ascended into power. They have a naval force on Cyprus. They have an army on Cyprus. So think of Rome when you see Cyprus here. Shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved. Because they're going to kick him out. And return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. And this is when he's really ticked off. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy people. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortresses. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now, the abomination of desolation, I didn't put it in the overheads. Just please listen. Abomination simply means something disgusting, filthy, associated with the practice of worshiping idols. Desolation simply means, like it says, destroy, lay waste. It's something horrible, something that you can't even think about that is so horrible. That is what is happening in the Jewish temple, something so awful and horrible, you can't even think about it happening in the temple. So with that, let's just review this again. There's another campaign against Egypt. He stopped by Rome, stopped right in his tracks. Ships from Cyprus, that's what I've already told you what that is. In a rage, he leaves Egypt and pours out his wrath on the Jewish people, whom he hates. Satan hates the Jews, Antichrist hates the Jews, and Antiochus Epiphanes, a type of Antichrist, hates the Jews. In verse 30, there's, there's an interesting word usage here. So he shall return and show regard for those, the last part of 30, and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. You know what that's saying? There's going to be Jews that buy into what Antiochus is doing and side with him against their own people, just like what will happen with Antichrist. Antichrist will deceive two-thirds of the Jewish people. One-third will realize when this stuff is happening, they need to get out of town because they've read what Daniel is saying here. Jesus warns them about it. They know to get out. Two-thirds are going to say, oh, no, this guy is great. He's wonderful. He's terrific. They end up dying. Two-thirds end up dying, according to Zechariah 13.8. So, Jewish traders side with Antiochus, forsake the Holy Covenant. And, and folks, remember this. This is what the majority will do. They will defect. Remember, God works through a few, a few, a small number, a remnant. It is, remember this statement, it is doubtful that the majority are ever correct. God works through a remnant. That's why when you hear on TV, they took a poll. They took a poll. Oh, all these people are saying this. Forget that. We want to focus on what is true, 
that and what the poll about the majority are thinking. Remember, the majority is doubtful that they're ever correct. Ever correct. So, Antiochus sets his mind on exterminating the Jewish people, just like the Antichrist does, in ending Jewish religious practice forever. That's his goal. Now, how does he do this? Number one, Antiochus banned the Mosaic Law. Took that away. This is crucial. This is a centerpiece of Judaism, is the Mosaic Law. And he takes it away, including temple services and the feast. You can't have your feast. You can't go to the temple. Takes it all away. Secondly, he burned all copies of the law that he could find. Tried to destroy. How many times in history have people tried to destroy the Bible? Take it out of circulation. Haven't done it in any communist country. Not one when they try to pile them up and burn them. They're always hidden. There's always God's word someplace. Thirdly, he sets up a statue of Zeus, his god, inside the temple, along with the altar where he made burnt offerings. And then finally, he sacrificed a pig on the Jewish altar and demanded that the Jews do this on his birthday every year. That's this guy, Antiochus. Now, I want you to notice something. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Now, if you're savvy with your Bible, you know Matthew 24 is the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is telling his disciples what to expect in the future, what will be the sign of your coming. And he said there's going to be deception, will reign. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilence in different places and lawlessness will abound and this word will be preached to the whole world. Then the end shall come. And then he gives a sign in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, this is Jesus speaking, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Pause right there. Jesus expected his people to know what the prophecy said. He expected them to know. In order to save their lives, they had to know what the prophecy said. The problem is, is that today, most of Israel is secular. The vast majority of Israel doesn't have a clue what the Bible, what the Tanakh, even their Old Testament says. They have not a clue. But he holds them responsible. Then he says this, verse 16. You see the abomination of desolation. Run for your life. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We know that's Petra. Let him who is in the house stop, not go down to take anything out of his house. This is not time to go get your stuff. This is get out of town. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babies in those days. You don't want anything slowing you down. How about the flight not being in the winter or on the Sabbath? For then, watch this, then there should be great tribulation, great thalispus, crushing, pressure, distress, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor even shall be. And then he makes this statement. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But he said for the elect's sake. Now in context, the elect here is the nation of Israel. Okay, in context, this is speaking of the nation of Israel. Those days will be shortened for the elect's sake the tribulation period is only going to go this long or all humanity will be wiped off the face of the earth. That's what Jesus is saying. 
So Jesus is speaking about a future time, a future Antichrist. He points back to Daniel and Antiochus as a type, and he expects his people to know. He expects them to know. In verse 32 through 35, we're going to see a faithful remnant. A faithful remnant. God always works through a faithful few. 32 through 35, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. Those are those guys that buy into his stuff. But the people who know their God, big delineator, shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those are the people who understand will instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering, Antiochus is going to kill a lot of people. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. This is going to be the Maccabees that are coming. I'll mention that in just a second. And some of those of understanding shall fall. And why? To refine them, purify them, make them white until the time of the end. So this persecution isn't just something isolated to here. It's speaking of all the way God's people will be persecuted all the way to the end because it is still for the appointed time. There'll be a time when Messiah comes back and establishes his kingdom. So let's develop this. Remember, again, his, his weapon is deception. It is flattery, and most will fall for it. Now remember the cultural creep. Many buy into the lies of the culture and much of the culture comes into the church and becomes the norm in the church. Be very careful of cultural creep. Who are the remnant? Well, it says there, the people who know their God. The people who know their God. They shall be strong and carry out exploits. Now, they're going to be defectors again. It's talking about the defectors again. Who participates in the Zeus worship, in the abomination of desolation, in the defiling of the temple. Just like we see with Antichrist, most of the Jews will take the mark of the beast. A third of them won't, but most of them will. Two-thirds will. Most of the world will take the mark of the beast, except those who are saved. And they will die for their faith, most of them. The greatest danger to Israel's survival is the worship of heathen gods. It's not the armies coming on them. It was from within the worship of heathen gods. And guess what? In the midst of this mess, it says here, now when they, in verse 34, now when they shall fall, they shall be aided with a little help. Watch this little help. One priest. One priest, Matthias and three sons, stood up and said no. One priest and three sons said no to Antiochus. We will not bow. And they led thousands of Jews. They got their courage in a revolt, which, which eventually overthrew Seleucus, the Seleucids, the Maccabean revolt. This took a lot of time. The word Maccabee is the Greek form of the surname Judas ben Matthias. The Jews applied this to the whole of Matthias' family. And the Maccabees were known, he was known actually as the hammer, the eradicator, the terminator. The Maccabees gave rise to to a group of people called the Hasidim. Hasidim. That means the godly, loyal ones who advocated for strict adherence to Mosaic law. They actually saved the nation of Israel from idolatry. 
Today, the, the, the strict Orthodox call themselves the Hasidim, Hasidim, the, the Hasim. The movement resulted in the spiritual survival of Israel until Jesus' time. From these Hasidim come the Pharisees at the time of Jesus, the strict ones, the legal ones. Also from the Hasidim came the Essenes, who've had their community down by Qumran. These are the ones that were fervently into the Word of God and were opposed to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. All these groups had their roots in verse 32, the people who know their God. See, there's a few people who will know their God and will stand and say, no more, no more. And just a side note, Antiochus is going to retaliate and retaliate and retaliate against the Jews. And he kills tens of thousands of Jews in the few years. But he ends up dying insane in Persia in 163 B.C. That's what happens to Antiochus. Just a final thought. In verse 35, it speaks of persecution. Those of the understanding will fall. They'll be refined and they'll be cleansed. Persecution, folks, has a purpose. Persecution has a purpose. If we persevere in our faith, persecution only refines us and makes us stronger. If we persevere in our faith, and I'll tell you what, persecution, I should have put it up here in big old bold letters, persecution weeds out the fakes. Persecution weeds out the false, weeds out the tears. In the tribulation period, there's going to be all kinds of martyrs, folks, people that will die for their faith. Revelation chapter 7 says, out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, there's a numerable amount that will give their lives and be saved. People will turn to Christ in the tribulation, but they will die for their faith. And I want to suggest to you, no matter how bad things get, God always has a faithful remnant, a faithful few who will do this, trust in the Lord until I die. That is their motto. I will trust in the Lord until I die. In closing, we're living in a time like none other. Would you agree with that? At least in America's history. The time called the church age, the last days, is coming to an end. We know that the church age ends with the rapture of the church. How close are we? Daniel had a perspective during his time. Daniel could see a near fulfillment. And he heard about this stuff that was coming. Probably didn't understand the whole thing. But he, we, he sees a near fulfillment with Antiochus. He can understand a little of that. But Antichrist coming, he probably didn't get a whole lot of that. But one day the king will come and reign. There's a near perspective and a far perspective. Now the reason that I mention this is in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Daniel is told something that I think is germane to us today. He says this, But you, Daniel... Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. What does that mean? A lot of people think that, well, knowledge is going to increase and transportation is going to go really fast and that sort of thing. That could be it. That could be it. But I think it also has this meaning, that, that many are going to run to and fro looking for the truth because the truth is going to become less and less prevalent, less and less obvious. So they're going to be looking more and more for the truth, running to and fro. And knowledge shall increase, just not general knowledge of physics and mathematics and that sort of thing, but a knowledge of the end times. Things are going to be revealed to us now that make sense. 
in light of what Daniel saw. Daniel couldn't make sense of this. But now it has become more apparent and more obvious to us now. Let me just give you a few of these things. As we go closer to the end, end our perspective will sharpen. Israel is in the land on May 14, 1948. Now hear this. No other people group in the history of the world has accomplished this. To be in captivity, dispersed throughout the world for 2,000 years, and then go back to their homeland and reestablish their nation. None. Zero. This is a miracle of God. Secondly, we know that technology explosion and distractions and deceptions are at an all-time high. No group of people have ever had this type of distraction 24-7 where we're addicted to this. You look at how many times, you, just, just examine how many times you look at your phone. How many times you're looking at the news. How many times you're looking at the weather. How many times you get a text. How many times you have information, information, information. No other people group has had this much in the history of the world. In the history of the world. Technological explosion. We know that we are living in a church age that is apostate, fallen away. In apostasy, we see this in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 as one of the signs of Jesus' imminent return, the day of the Lord. And nations are lining up like, like the only time in the history. We're always talking about, oh, we're getting close. Something's happening here. Something's happening there. But watch this. This is the first time in the history of the world that Russia, Iran, and Turkey have lined up. And they are the main players in Ezekiel 38 and 39 of these nations that will have a coalition that will attack Israel. And God will rescue his people. Never has that happened. It has happened now. And never have we had a time, at least in our country, where globalization is being pushed, setting the stage for a one-world government. And never has there been a time in the history of the world where we have had this universal freefall of morals. Worldwide abortion is championed. It isn't just abortion is an awful, terrible thing. It is championed, particularly when you hear people in New York City championing abortion all the way up to the time the, person, the, the baby is born. Championing the rights of the woman all the way to that point. Gay marriage, the occult, false religions, all on an increase. And with, the, with this information, everything coming at you at such pace, you may feel the weight of this. I don't know if you do, but I, I do. And you might start to wonder. You might start to worry. You might start even to doubt. If you do, here's a couple helpful hints. Number one, prophecy is proof of divine inspiration. Prophecy is proof that the Word of God is true and that you can trust it and you can rest in it. Our God reigns. Our God is in control. Secondly, you know this, earthly riches can be lost. Think about Babylonian captivity. But yet God preserved his people through that. And we know by the study of Daniel chapter 2 that political, political kingdoms come and go. Kings rise and kings fall. God raises up kings. God brings down kings. And remember this, God is faithful to his people. We're living in uncertain times in an uncertain world. We all realize, we feel it. We feel it. But I want you to know we are safe and secure because Jesus remains faithful.
That is why we're secure. Remember Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, that actually is a pastillo. A means lacking pastillo faith, lacking faith. That actually is talking about saving faith. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Look at it. There are people in this age that are going to say they are faithless. They aren't going to believe in God. They don't want God. And that's going to be the vast majority. But that does not mean that God is not faithful. He will save anyone that will say yes to him. Anyone that will say, yes, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. I receive you as my Savior. He will accept. He is faithful. I also want to suggest to you that there's times when we might doubt and still be part of the faithful. There might be times when we worry and we can still be part of the faithful. There might be times when we wonder, what in the world is this thing all about? Just go back to the basics. Go back to the Word. Go back to who Jesus is. No matter the tumult that is around you, God is greater than your tumult. He is greater than your mess. And so what are we to do? Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. Stay close to him. Stay close to your shepherd. Listen for his voice. And I would suggest if you listen hard enough, you will hear the Spirit say, this is the way. Walk in it. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my right hand. Do not allow culture creep to creep into your life. If we endure, we shall reign with him. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, we're to fight the good fight of, of faith. Fight, fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. The remnants rallying cry, folks. The remnants rallying cry, the few rattling cry is this. I will trust in the Lord until I die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, please do your work inside of each one of us. We've all heard something, something unique that you've just brought to our minds. Help us to not just hear the word, but help us to take it in and do what you've called us to do. Help us to be changed, Lord, because we've come in contact with your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have a picture of the future. We admittedly don't know exactly how all this is going to play out, but you've given us a, a really a good outline of what to look for. May we be people, the remnant, that have a, our eyes open, our hearts soft, our ears open, to hear the Spirit say, this is the way, walk in it. Thank you for this time to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.